Welcome to the Full Fact Podcast, where we fight bad information one fact at a time. I'm Alexis Conran, and in this episode, we're going to discuss for our main story the many, many social media posts surrounding Black Lives Matter protests that we've seen across the UK, and particularly in the capital over the past two weekends. We're also going to be looking at questions of where uh, hospital patients were discharged to care homes without COVID-19 tests, and also whether or not the Track and Trace app is being automatically downloaded onto people's phones without their permission. But first, I'm joined by Deputy Editor Claire Milne. Hi, Claire. Hi there. Now, the biggest story of the week, which involved an unlikely political force in footballer Marcus Rashford, who, by writing a letter uh, addressed to all MPs concerning the free school meals that were due to be stopped over the summer holidays, has managed to make a government with a majority of 80 do a U-turn on its policy. They wanted to stop the free school meals over the holidays. Now the Prime Minister has said that they will go ahead. Now, it it became a a political story because, of course, it involved all the MPs, but it was also uh, the big sort of focus of the debates in Wednesday's Prime Minister's question time between the leader of the opposition and the Prime Minister. And you have been looking into some of the numbers involved, not only in the Marcus Rashford letter, but also in what was said in Parliament. So there are lots of different claims flying around uh, at Prime Minister's questions the other day. I'll try and rattle through them as, as quickly as I can. So first of all, um, Keir Starmer brought up a, a figure which actually had come from um, the letter that, that Marcus Rashford wrote as well. So he mentioned that there were 1.3 million children who, who are likely to benefit from the government's change in its policy on these, these free school meals, free school meal vouchers and things. So there are 1.3 million children in England who are ordinarily eligible to to receive free school meals. In addition to that 1.3 million figure, the the government has also extended the eligibility for those vouchers to some children who who are in a a group of people um, that are described as having no recourse to to public funds in the UK. So that's children in, in, in family groups and things who have temporary immigration status. So the potential figure of people who could benefit from this is likely to actually be slightly higher than the 1.3 million. Now, then we got into the, the poverty figures. So Keir Starmer said that the, the social mobility concluded there were now 600,000 more children living in, in relative poverty than mm-hmm. in 2012. Yeah. Um, and that is correct based on figures from the government's Social Mobility Commission's um, report. It's based on, on government figures looking at relative poverty and looking at the, the change since 2011 to 2018. So that, that figure was, was correct. And then he also said that child poverty rates are projected to increase to 5.2 million by 2022. That was another figure that actually came up in in Marcus Rashford's letter. This one was a bit more tricky. It seems to be um, based on an estimate that the Institute for Fiscal Studies did back in 2017. They were projecting back then that child poverty would likely rise from from 30% in 2015 to 37% by 2021-22. So this projection seems to have been used to create a figure of of 5.2 million children. However, it doesn't seem as though uh, those projections have actually played out the way the IFS thought they would in the intervening years. If they had, we would expect child poverty to be at around 35% by now on the measure that the IFS looked at, but it's still around 30%. So we don't think that that projection is is likely to actually play out in in the same way that was anticipated anymore. So that figure, um, there's, there's some uncertainty over. 
And what about Boris Johnson's claims? So he said that absolute poverty and relative poverty are both down under this government. Now, he didn't actually specify he was talking about child poverty, even though that's what Mr Starmer had been talking about. So we can't be exactly sure what he meant. And it's also unclear what he meant by this government when he said that, as there's lots of different starting points you you could take for that over the last decade. So we've assumed he was referring to all people in poverty and that he meant since the end of the last Labour government and the start of the coalition. So once you account for all that, the exact trends actually depend on the different measures of poverty you might look at. um, And there's no real consistent picture with those. For example, government figures show that the proportion of people in low income either rose slightly, fell slightly or stayed flat, depending on which measure you're looking at or which exact year you start from, whether that's 2009 or 2010. Mr Johnson also claimed in PMQs that there are 400,000 fewer families living in poverty than in 2010. Again, it's a bit unclear what he was referring to here, so we've asked Number 10 for more information about the claim, and we'll update our fact-check if we hear anything back, and you can find that on fullfact.org. OK. Thank you, Claire, but stick around for our Ask Full Fact section, because I know that there is a question for you there. Now, let's welcome, for our main item, Tom Phillips, who's the full fact editor and this week as promised last week we are going to be looking at black lives matter protests and the counter protests following last weekend of course there's been a plethora of social media posts both on facebook twitter and pretty much everywhere and full fact have been busy trying to verify all of them you must have had a ton of things to actually shift through yeah it's fair to say there was quite a lot of material to go through on this and yeah it's always a tricky thing to address verifying sort of real-time information like that but yeah we've we've given it a go let's start with this claim showing pictures of police officers who were supposedly injured at the black lives matter protests so this is it's a composite image of lots of different images of injured police officers and this has been spread widely across social media the important thing to say about it is that these images come from protests across many years. So lots and lots of people assumed that it was all pictures from the Black Lives Matter protest. It's not. So uh, one of them is from a uh, Tommy Robinson protest in 2018. Uh, another one was taken from a protest uh, against uh, David Cameron back in April 2016. And some of the images that are from the Black Lives Matter protest are in fact of the same officer as well. So it was kind of taken to imply, like, look at all these police officers who've all been injured in the the BLM protests, and that's not what it showed at all. Okay, and there was another viral claim supposedly identifying the protester who attempted to burn one of the Cenotaph's Union Jack flags. What happened there? What happened there was that the internet hive mind believed that it had identified the individual who was seemingly trying to set fire to one of the flags on the Cenotaph and shared this picture around going, like, this is him, this is the guy. It wasn't. It was a completely different person who hadn't even been to that protest. He'd been at a protest several days earlier. As a result of this, he has been getting abuse and death threats and things like that on social media because he's been falsely identified as this person. The reason for it was 
basically that he was wearing a jacket that was sort of similar colors to the person on the cenotaph but actually if you looked at it closely like the jacket was clearly not the same like the colors were in different places on on the jacket and all that sort of thing and so yeah it was a case of mistaken identity and this person has been bearing the brunt of abuse for that reason why do these types of posts take off and and why do people share them so willingly without checking them people want to see a narrative that appeals to them and so you see this all over the place and this comes from all sides of the political spectrum when we see something that reinforces our existing beliefs our defenses kind of go down our guard is down we are less likely to check that out and we're much more likely to retweet it to share it that's particularly the case when we're talking about issues that are deeply emotive deeply painful for many people there is a really really understandable urge to sort of share and to get the word out i have a confession to make that i came across a video which i didn't question as much as i probably should have and i took it at face value and i believe this is a video that you first spotted on twitter what it was was mobile phone footage of the large crowd of the counter-protesters. This were the people who had come down to oppose the Black Lives Matter uh, protest, which had been cancelled on the weekends of the 13th mm. and the 14th of June. They came down to protect the statues and to voice their opposition. And it was a video of uh, this big crowd, and they were all chanting, and they were chanting, we're racist, we're racist, we're racist, we don't care. I didn't mm. really question this video and it turns out that I should have done. Yeah, because the, the footage is, as far as we can tell, real. The audio is from a completely different event years ago. In fact, it was quite an infamous event at the time. It was a bunch of Chelsea fans on the Paris Metro chanting, we're racist, we're racist, and that's the way we like it. There was a lot of news coverage. This was back in 2015. Um, and someone had simply taken the audio from that and had laid it over the top of this video from the protest there. In this case... Checking that was actually relatively easy because the person admitted on Twitter that they'd faked it. I'm not sure why they were doing that. I think it may have just been for a laugh, which is often the case with these things. Sort of things that start as jokes get taken seriously, they get taken out of context. But this ended up blowing up. There were like three newspapers reported this as a factual event. All since have, you know, sort of removed that reference from their articles. But yeah, it was, a, it was exactly that kind of thing of like, it seemed plausible to i think mm -hmm. lots of people that that might be the sort of thing that uh, those people were chanting and so yeah exactly the defenses were down it didn't seem like something you needed to fact check quite so much and it became you know sort of a, a, an accepted fact for a while on twitter that that had been chanted and it, it wasn't the case that that had been chanted another thing we've seen is a really sustained assertion that a protester was stabbed at the demonstrations what did you find when you investigated this one? Yeah, and so this is the claim that we've seen being really, really widely shared in the aftermath of the counter-protests over the weekend. And this is basically a claim that there were stabbings uh, at the protests. And one of the key pieces of uh, evidence, as it were, for this is a video or screenshots from a video of uh, a young black man making what looks like a stabbing motion at the neck of an older white man. If you actually look at the video, however... There is no knife in his hand. It's quite clear that it's what this is, is a punch. It's not a stabbing. We spoke to the Metropolitan Police and they told us after the weekend that there were no stabbings at all that were reported during 
either the BLM protests or the counter-protests that weekend. I mentioned this in a radio interview, and I had someone going back to me on Twitter showing me the screenshots from that same video that I had just talked about with the person coming back to me and saying, why are you covering up the stabbings that happened? How do you go about fact-checking this? I mean, the photos of the police, the injured police officers that we've discussed, you can do a Google reverse image search and find that they actually appeared before that date. When you get something that's fresh, when you get something that doesn't appear anywhere else, this is just a video that's been posted out there or an image, you do a reverse image search, it doesn't appear can you draw conclusions or you at full fact need to back it up with other separate sources? How, how does it work? Because the more you describe what you do, then the more people can get an idea of how they can go about fact checking the stuff that they come across. There's a kind of a two pronged approach here. One is you look for contextual clues in the video or the image itself. So are there visible things in the background like are there sort of names of shops or landmarks or something like that that can help you locate it if there's video with something being said in it then you can try for example googling some key words from what's being said in it see if it's been mentioned anywhere might there have been a media report about this video if it's an old video uh, which might have quoted some part of it but really it is it is a job of piecing together all of these different pieces of information like the really advanced level stuff on this organizations like bellingcat are really great at this you get into things like looking at the shadows on the ground to work out the angle of the sun to work out what time of day it was. You're cross-referencing against weather records in that location to see when it might have been, if it was sunny or rainy or something like that that day. There was a brilliant piece of work that BBC Africa did, which was about a killing of uh, civilians by armed forces, and it was contested what country this had happened in, and they ended up identifying it by the shape of the mountain range, that was visible in the background they ended up basically tracing the line of the mountain range and ended up they got a tip off that it might have been here and they were able to look at google earth and go like oh the mountain range lines up you get really really deep into this it's one of those things where either you can normally find out the answer in five minutes or it's going to take you days or possibly weeks or months you know it's a really really complicated thing this is a territory that is relatively new in journalism it's kind of only been going on for sort of a decade or so and so there are new tools and new techniques that are kind of evolving all the time for how you can kind of do this verification of uh, images and video that you've seen on social media. Thanks, Tom. Now, of course, uh, last part of the show is uh, Ask Full Fact. This is where you get to send us questions that you want answered. Let's kick off with one of the questions that we have had a few times, which is, were hospital patients discharged to care homes without COVID-19 tests? Claire, you've looked into this. What have you found? Yes, so we've first of all, looked at what exactly the, the guidance said about this, what was written down about whether tests were required. So we found that in mid-March, NHS England and NHS Improvement wrote to hospital trusts telling them that they needed to expand the critical care capacity that they had um, in order to deal with the um, anticipated influx of COVID-19 patients that they were expecting. And to do that, they had to discharge all hospital patients who, who were medically fit to leave the hospital. And that included some patients who would be discharged to go to care homes. 
So when um, guidance on this, exactly how to do this, was published by the Department of Health, it didn't have a requirement in it to test those patients before they were discharged. On the 2nd of April, it was said in new government guidance that care home residents who had symptoms of COVID-19 should be isolated, but that negative tests weren't required before patients were transferred Mm -hmm. from hospitals into care homes. It wasn't until the middle of April on the 15th that when the government published its adult social care plan that it said that trusts would need to test all patients before they were discharged. So in that intervening time, it is possible that there were patients who did not have symptoms, perhaps, who were being discharged from hospitals and going into care homes. But if we look at what actually happened, what we we can, can work out... NHS providers, which is a membership body for lots of different NHS services, said that despite the fact that it wasn't written down that they had to, trusts were already testing patients and care home residents with symptoms wherever there was capacity and and that they could do that. Thank you, Claire. Tom, I wonder if you could handle this one. Another question we've had a few times is uh, regarding the Track and Trace app. And these are people wondering whether it's being automatically downloaded onto their phones without permission. Now, I have to say, I did notice in an update that I did on my uh, phone, which is an Apple device, that there is a new bit in the operating system regarding COVID-19 tracing app. It, it doesn't seem to be like a standalone app, but it's it's part of the operating system. But is there any evidence of an actual app being automatically downloaded onto people's phones without their permission? There isn't. This is a misunderstanding about the underlying technology behind it. So yes, as you say, if you look in the settings of your phone, if you've got an Apple device or an Android device, then you will see this new thing that has appeared as part of an operating system update. Uh, which is called COVID-19 exposure notifications. Um, I've checked on my Android device. That's how committed to impartiality we are. Uh, we're making sure that we're equally divided. <laughs> One of each. But yes, it's, it's, it's there. This is the API, which is the application programming interface. A bit of technical language there. Um, so well this remembered. is the scheme... Yes, absolutely. Knew that off the top of my head. Didn't have to Google it shortly before this. Um, This is the thing that Apple and Google have been collaborating on to enable different countries track and trace apps to work using Bluetooth. So, you know, it allows them to these apps to use the Bluetooth to work out if you've been near to another phone that might be of someone who then tests positive for COVID-19. So what's been added to your phone is simply the ability for these kind of apps to work. So, yeah, this is a a misunderstanding. Your operating system of your phone has been updated to enable apps of this type to work, but it's not doing anything. It's not turned on. It's not an app itself. And crucially, it's not tracing you or tracking you or doing anything like that to you unless you explicitly give it permission to do so. Okay, thank you, Tom. That's the end of our podcast. Thank you for listening to the Full Fact Podcast. You can find previous episodes and any future ones on Acast, iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere else you can think of. Uh, Be sure to subscribe, and the latest episode will be ready on your device every Friday morning. And if you can leave us a review, every little bit helps. Listener.